Welcome to the Hardwick Evangelical Church Weekly Podcast. Amos chapter 1 verses 1 to 15 and then with just a couple of verses in chapter 2. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the valley, no, the king who is in the valley of Aven, and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. Disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will send, set fire to the walls of Rabah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. Now, chapter 2, verse 6 and a bit. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. It uh, sounds terrible, doesn't it? And don't don't worry, I'm not going to be going through the details of what Amos was prophesying, but I'm going to be looking at what what was he saying about prophecy and how we should react to prophecies that are in the Bible. Because we think we know what a prophet is and what a prophet does. And the Israelites at the time of Amos thought they knew what a prophet was, 
But Amos was a completely new kind of prophet. He, um, we're used to this sort of prophet, a prophet who tells things about the future, but no one in Israel had ever been that sort of prophet before. Amos was the first one. It's possible that Joel came a little bit before, but uh, yeah, he, he really was the first one to do this. And they thought that if a prophet said something was going to happen, it would happen. Uh, perhaps some of you do as well. But Amos was there to tell, no, that's not how prophecy works. That's not what God is saying to them. Amos was going to show them how to respond to those prophecies. And we've got to know how to respond to prophecies in our time. Now, before Amos, there were other prophets. He actually reminds Israel that, they were, that God had blessed them with prophets in the past, although he said, you kicked them out, you didn't really like them. But well, they liked people like Elijah and Elisha, who brought along wonderful miracles. But they didn't like prophets like Micaiah, who said, yeah, you go off to war, Jehoshaphat, and you'll get killed. Uh, <laughs> they wanted prophets to say the right things. And like David, David was told by Nathan about the sin he had committed with Bathsheba. And uh, Nathan had to try and find a way in which to tell a story uh, so that he'd be able to get the message out to David before he got kicked out or worse. And fortunately, David did listen to him. Now, those prophets had God's spirit in them to do miracles and to speak out what God was saying, to speak his words. And they fearlessly spoke what God wants to say what God's opinion was about what was going wrong. But they didn't say what was going to happen in the future. That's something new. That started with Amos. And people would have been surprised to hear him saying things like that. As I said, Joel was possibly earlier, but that was in, um, the, in Judah. So this was new, absolutely new for the northern Israel. Uh, for some reason, the, the guy who made that chart couldn't figure out where to put Joel. Oh, no, 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 he did put him right at the end, uh, you know, like you can't see it, it's off the, sheet, off the chart. But uh, anyway, yeah, Amos was absolutely new for Israel. And people were surprised because he was the first, it's not a surprise for us because we read all these other prophets in the Old Testament that say things about the far future. But uh, hey, we're looking past Amos. And we're used to hearing words about the future. And from us, many of those events which were prophesied are history. <laughs> They've happened. Uh, and we can see that they actually happened. In fact, sometimes the prophecies are so realistic, people say, ah, yeah, 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 really, it was written after the event, you know, the thing happened. And then they wrote down, this is what's going to happen. Uh, I can't see well, how, how that would have fooled anyone. And what, what would be the benefit to the prophets? He might have fooled us in the far future, who didn't know about what he was writing down, but uh, a prophet who wrote things after the event, he wasn't going to get any kudos. I mean, <laughs> it's bad enough telling people that God is going to do, do his vengeance on you for doing harm. Uh, it's uh, even worse to say, and I'm going to rub your face in it now, you know, this is what this has happened because you're so terrible. Uh, you just don't like people who say those sort of things. And they certainly didn't like the prophets bad things happened to them. They had a wretched time for speaking out. I can't see that anyone would have bothered to write this down after the event. These were prophecies written before things happened. And Amos had more problems than most predictive prophets because he was the first. He first had to persuade his hearers that God actually did know what was happening in the future. 
So he's actually giving warnings about something that's going to happen. So he had to tell them how to act on that information, what to do with it. Now, actually, that's something we need to learn too, because I, th I think that we get this wrong. What should we do with prophecy? Those prophecies haven't happened like yet, like Jesus' second coming. Should we simply sit and wait for it? Or should we hurry it along? Or should we delay it? I think you'll be surprised by the answer. But first of all, Amos had a problem. He had to sneak up on his listeners. Because if he simply said, God is going to destroy you for your sin, uh, I think his listeners would walk away. Well, first, of course, they'd pick up stones and stone him, and then they'd walk away from the corpse. He had to find some way to sneak up on this. And, well, Israel, like most countries, was surrounded by neighboring countries that they were rivals with and sometimes enemies of, you know, like us and France. We haven't had war with them for ages, but we call them frogs. You know, it's, uh, it's what you do to your neighbors, isn't it? You, uh, you malign them. And, um, yeah, Israel is no different. So he starts saying what God is going to do to the neighboring countries, to Syria and Tyre in the north. There, there. Uh, and uh, Gaza in the south, and Edom, and Ammon, and Moab, and the, you can imagine people cheering now. He's going to get at Syria, yay! And he's going to whoop Tyre, whoa! And he's going to beat up Gaza, Roar! And Edom, and Ammon, and Moab, And Judah, um, well, we're not quite sure about them, because, you know, Judah, they're sort of our brothers and sisters, but... Uh, yeah, brothers and sisters, yeah, yeah, beat them up as well. And then the crowd is roaring, cheering as each enemy is named and blamed and God had reasons to be angry with each of those na nations and he would bring destruction as a result. They weren't sure about Judah, but uh, hey, you know, they're rivals too. But then Amos got to the main message. God was also angry with Israel. That's us! Ah, and you can imagine the crowd sort of going silent and perhaps looking for stones. But Amos didn't pull any punches because he just spent two or three verses on each of these neighboring nations. And when he got to Israel, he gets 10 verses and lots and lots of description of what they'd done wrong. And this is just his first message in the book. So Amos has to convince the people that God can see the future. And the later readers have to see that too. So they weren't there at the time. They weren't there to see, oh yes, he spoke about this before it happened. So the book starts with a very clear timestamp. It says, it was in the days of Isaiah of Judah and Jeroboam of Israel. So, uh, uh, Isaiah is also called Azariah, confusingly. So the, between, he was speaking at the time of those two kings. And he says... Very specifically, it was two years before the earthquake. Hey, that, that, that's putting a real time. If I said um, this is happening two years after lockdown, oh, we know when lockdown was. Yeah, so this must be 2022. We're not able to pinpoint when that earthquake was. It didn't leave anything in the geology that we can go and uh, identify. But we might be able to pinpoint it because he also speaks about a solar eclipse. In, in chapter 8, he says, 
um, with the earthquake, uh, the land will tremble, it will rise like the Nile, be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. So every year the Nile rises up and floods the arable land and goes back again. So the, the, the land will do that like an earthquake. And on that day I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight, describing what a solar eclipse would be like. And we know there was a solar eclipse in 763, uh, June the 15th. That's if you're setting your TARDIS and you want to go and see it, it's June the 15th. Uh, and so we can pinpoint that. So we know when Amos was speaking two years before that. Now, you'd expect Amos, he's talking about an earthquake that's going to come in two years' time. So what are you going to say? Well, well you know, buildings fell down, people got crushed, and there, there was havoc everywhere. He doesn't. He doesn't describe it like that at all. It's rather strange. Uh, have a look in um, what he predicts for Damascus in uh, verse 4 and 5. He says, the city gate will break. Well, actually, that's done by the, the nation of Moab when they come and attack them. The immediate damage is fire. And he says that about Gaza as well, fire. There'll be some long-term uh, de uh, defeat from the armies, but fire will be the immediate damage. Also, Tyre, fire, Edom, fire, Ammon, fire. The list continues all the way through. Fire is what comes. And he's been talking about an earthquake. And these fires aren't described in the way we'd expect. Uh, it's not soldiers riding through villages throwing burning torches onto thatched roofs and burning down the wooden houses. Nothing of that. In fact, the, the fires aren't even in the wooden houses. It says the fire is in the walls of the city, not on the wooden walls of houses. The fire consumes the fortresses, the stone buildings, not the houses. The people who die are the princes in, in chapter 2, verse 3, and rulers in chapter 1, verse 5 and 8. It seems to affect the buildings, the stone buildings, the big buildings of the city walls and those people living in palaces. So how does that happen? Well, one possibility is that the earthquake happened late at night. Uh, and then uh, that knocks lamps over and causes fires. But where would the lamps be? Only in places where you've got guards on duty all night and they, they have some lamps to, so they can uh, do their gambling or whatever else they're doing to while away their time uh, in a bit of light. And when those lamps fall over, the, the flame catches onto the hangings and the furnitures and, and the, the building goes up. And so it's only the, the city walls and the palaces which get destroyed, and so the only people who killed are the princes and rulers. Now, I like the pinpoint accuracy of this punishment from God. That The wooden houses, they didn't fall down in an earthquake, they just rock, and some things might fall out of the roof. They didn't kill anyone. It's the rulers that got killed. The people were left unharmed, but the ones who caused the evil, the ones who decided to do these terrible things, they must described, they're the ones that suffered. It's how surgical bombing in this sophisticated world should work. But God achieved it just with the tools that he created in nature and managed to bring this very sophisticated, very pinpointly accurate punishment to the nations. 
And the point is, of course, that he told Amos two years before it happened. And Amos told everyone else. So when it happened, everyone knew it was from God. Now, unfortunately, the church over the ages started to think that all disasters, all famines, all plagues, they're all messages from God. In the Middle Ages, any plague, any famine, any defeat at war would be regarded as a message from God. They didn't bother to ask if a prophet had said it would happen. They thought that God did this and therefore God was saying something. And so they thought they could decide what God had said even without prophets. They'll just, uh, you know, pin the blame on someone. And uh, that unfortunately means they usually look for the victims of plagues and say, ah, oh, they're the sinners. They're the sinners that are bringing everything on us. And just blamed these suspected sinners that God supposedly wanted to punish. And some Christians still think like that. But that's what happened when AIDS started going around the homosexual community. Everyone said, ah, oh, that's God's punishment on these homosexuals. But no prophet had said it was going to happen. And when it spread to everyone else, haemophiliacs and the rest of the population, then, oh, oh God's making a mistake. He's, he's punishing the wrong people. But it was, there was no prophet saying that he was going to do this. This wasn't a message from God. In Iran, you get lots of earthquakes there because it's on a geological fault zone. And many imams blame this on immodest women who don't cover their hair properly. Uh, and the, the president said that the capital should be partly evacuated because the, the whole city is going to be flattened by an earthquake because of this, these immodest women. And a massive earthquake will come very soon. But he said that in 2010. Uh, there, there will be an earthquake uh, because um, there's a geological fault line running underneath the city. Uh, that's geologists saying it's going to happen, not prophets from God. It's not God's anger, it's a geological fault line in that case. The point is, God can and does use natural disasters, but God decides when there's going to be a message beforehand. If a prophet warns that God is angry and what he will do, and then it happens, it's a message from God. But if someone says God's message after the event, well, come on, that's just making things up. The whole point of telling us is to tell us beforehand so that people can change their ways, so that people can repent. Amos didn't just tell Israel that bad things were happening, he told them why? And telling them why God was angry meant they could prevent it. They could change. If God wasn't just saying what he will do, he was saying what he would do. What he would do if they didn't change their ways and repent. And God, if they did change, would relent and would not punish them. In Jeremiah, it's made very, very clear a few years later. God says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, it will happen. It doesn't say that. It says, And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I'd planned. That's how prophecy works. 
That's the point of prophecies about disasters, to help people change. So if, if you're a parent, do you just lash out when your child does something wrong? You sit them down and you explain why what they did was so stupid and so harmful and so wrong. And you say, if you do that again, then you will have this punishment. And if they do do it again, you do punish them. And it's not surprising, it's not unexpected, it's what you said would happen. And if they keep doing it, then the punishments get worse. Because you're a good father, a good mother, one who wants to help your children learn. And God is a good father. He warns us, he teaches us, and eventually he does need to be harsh with us. He doesn't just lash out without warning. That's not how to teach someone. When a disaster comes after a prophet has given us warning, we know it's from God, and we know we should have changed. What was God teaching Israel at this point by Amos? Why did God punish them in this way? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Was, uh, that's for next week. I just want to finish by looking at what we should do about prophecy today. The Old Testament prophets, they made lots of predictions, some about the far future, and we know that God has wonderful plans for this planet in the future, which will look very different, because eventually Jesus will come and rule and judge, and sin won't reign anymore. The day of the Lord will come when all lordship will rest with God, and we will all obey him. Now, we tend to look forward to the coming of that day, but Amos actually warns us against that. He says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord! Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. He points out that the day of the Lord comes when disaster, absolute disaster has happened and God has to intervene. We now know much more about this day from the other prophets and from Revelation. It will be a time of justice for the world and all the ills that have accumulated. Uh, but that also means the time of mercy has come to an end and judgment will come instead. And the worst of that is that the time for repentance will be ended because that's the time when everything's going to be judged, when sin will be judged. So when Amos heard what God predicted, he didn't pray for God to carry it out. Instead, he prayed for the people and asked God to delay that judgment. He asked for more mercy, more time for people to repent. In chapter 7, he goes, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. It will not happen, the Lord said. And that part of the prophecy was delayed. Amos's reaction was to pray for people to have more opportunity to repent. And that's the role of the church too. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he reminded them what he taught them about this man of sin that was going to come and rule in the last days. And Daniel had spoken about him, saying that he would put his statue in the temple and claim to be God. So let me read what it says in Thessalonians. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, 
and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he or it is taken out of the way. Yeah, that's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Paul wasn't able to write clearly what he meant because this was an open letter being taken by the, the letter service. Anyone could re uh, open it and read it and see what these rebellious Christians are about. And the mad emperor Caligula was already sending a statue of himself to the temple. It was on a boat on its way, as Paul wrote. He wanted to demand that everyone would worship him as God. And the whole of Israel was in uproar. Jews were all in mourning. They'd covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes as if every one of them had lost a near relative. There were no crops being uh, sown. The, 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 it, it was a year after a, a, a Sabbath year, so there was very little food in store in Israel, and no one has bothered to with the um, with agriculture. They weren't doing any work at all. They were just lining the streets, uh, saying, "No, no, no, we can't have this." And when the soldiers advanced to clear them out of the way, they just bared their chest, saying, "Okay, kill us." And the statue arrived at Caesarea on a boat ready to be taken to Jerusalem. And the streets were just full of these people saying, we'd rather have a land full of corpses than to have that statue in our temple. So the Roman governor, who wasn't normally all that kind, he wrote to the emperor. He said, look, this land, it's, it's, it's going to destroy this land if you have that statue in the temple. Please change your mind for the sake of the people. And Caligula was mad. The thing that really irritated him was that he was being asked to change his mind for the reason of mercy for these idiots in, in Israel. Uh, so he commanded that the governor should commit suicide in disgrace and that the statue should be put up in a temple. Fortunately, Caligula was going through a, a lonely passageway uh, uh, one night just after that and uh, he was stabbed and the uh, news about his death got to the commander before the order that he had to commit suicide. So not only was the commander saved, but Israel was saved, uh, and probably the whole world, because if that had happened, Jews all over the world would have rebelled. Uh, the, the Romans would have had to not only wipe them out, wipe out the whole land, not just Jerusalem, as happened at 70. And when that existential threat against God's people comes, then Jesus would have to return. Now, did Paul ask the church to pray for Jesus to return soon? He could have said, look, everything's falling into place. Jesus could return right now. We just have to pray for it to happen. And we wouldn't be here now. 
Of course the suffering church was longing for Jesus to come. They, they cried, come Lord, Maranatha. But the role of the church is to resist and prevent evil, including the evil of the last days. Paul couldn't tell them clearly in an open letter that they should pray against the emperor's plan. So he said it subtly. He reminded them of what he'd taught them before. He said, when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. Hint, hint, remember? And now you know what is holding him back. The one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And the church will be taken out of the way in the end. We know that from Revelation. The church won't hold back evil forever. But until then, we have a job to do, like Amos did. Amos repeatedly warned his people of the consequences of their sinful lives. And that's our role too, to remind people of an eternal plan in the, for us that follows this life. And Amos also prayed for God's judgment to be delayed so that more people could repent. And that's our role too, to keep evil at bay through our prayers, through our actions, so that more people can repent and follow Jesus before the day of the Lord comes. So, when you see disasters, when you see wars, when you see evil running rampant, we should pray. We shouldn't rub our hands in glee and say, oh good, Jesus is coming back soon. We should be getting our heads down to the work that we have of working here in prayer and in action to delay that evil. Jesus has left us here on earth to do that. We need to work against that evil, to extend the time for those who need it so that others, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, the ones we haven't imagined yet, will also have time to be rescued from this world before destruction means that Jesus has to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here ready to rescue us from the stupidity of men and sometimes women who want to blow up the earth in a gr grand war or who want to pollute the earth with terrible evil. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you will rescue us from ourselves, but please help us in the meantime to keep that evil away. Give us your strength, your insight to pray and to work for you. In Jesus' name, Amen. For more information about Hardwick Evangelical Church, please click the website link in our bio.